the name of God who loves us, who wants walked among us, and who spurs us ever on. Amen. Please be seated. Timing is, you know, everything. Timing is everything. So I've told you in the past about my neighbor. Um, when I was living on a farm in northern New Hampshire, just under the shadow of Mount Washington, um, on a, a, the Dundee Road on Dundee Mountain um, in Jackson, New Hampshire, the fellow who lived down the road from me, probably a mile and a half or so, um, an elderly gentleman who had, had farmed and had been a part of that community for his whole life. He was in his 60s. His name was Earl Roberts. Earl the Pearl Roberts, and Earl was a character. Earl um, would constantly tease us about what we were doing or not doing. He'd tell us exactly how not to do something like, say, you know, um, prepare a chicken coop, and then we'd screw it up, and then he'd come and laugh, and then he'd tell us how to do it the right way. Um, but that was Earl. He's a wonderful guy, but a real tease. Earl never drove, never had a driver's license, um, never thought it was necessary, but he had other people like us to drive him around all the time. Earl had a sister, and her name was Gwendolyn. Earl was probably, at the time, was probably in his middle 60s. And Gwendolyn was a little bit younger. And if you've ever seen the movie, What's Eating um, um, Gilbert Grape? You know the movie, What's Eating Gilbert Grape? Have you seen that movie? Nobody's ever seen that. It was one of my favorite movies. It was Leonardo DiCaprio's breakout role in that movie. Anyway, there's a mom in that movie. Her name was Mama. And she's a really big lady, I mean, really big lady. And um, she can't get around very well. She's not very mobile. Well, Gwen was like that. Gwen was um, a very large woman and was not able to get around very much. Now, Earl and Gwen had a house that their family had had for a long time, at least several generations. And it was built up. The, the first floor was actually a barn or a, a garage. And, and all of, of the farming implementation, all the equipment went into that although Earl never had a tractor. He used oxen. I think he had the last pair of oxen um, on that mountain, Pat and Mike, and they were magnificent animals. But, but they spent a lot of time in the first floor of the house, and so there was a flight of stairs that got to the living quarters, and Gwen couldn't go out. I mean, she was stuck in the house because she could not negotiate the stairs. She was just too, too large, and her knees were too bad. So one of the things that we would do is we would go shopping on a pretty regular basis for Gwen, because we could drive. Now, Gwen told me that she had had her first banana when she was a teenager. Um, in, in the early 1900s, in that part of New Hampshire, bananas were just not available. She loved bananas. She loved them. But because she couldn't get out, and we only shopped once a week, she was very particular about her bananas. <laughs> now, when I bought Gwen bananas, they had to be a bunch of seven or eight bananas, and they had to be ripe enough so that the first day she got them, she could eat a banana. But they had to be green enough that by the sixth or seventh day, the last banana wasn't so spotted with brown that she wouldn't eat it. She was very particular about her bananas, and it would take me a long time to find just the right bunch of bananas for Gwen, because I knew if they were too green, I'd get the hairy eyeball. And if they were not green enough, it would be the same. So... Timing was everything for Gwen and Gwen's bananas. Um, you got to get them just right, right? The time has got to be right. Reminded me, I was thinking this week about Henny Youngman. Do you remember Henny Youngman? 
Henny Youngman was a stand-up comic. He started out as a violin player in a band, and, and one um, on vaudeville, and one show, the comedian didn't show up. And the guy running the show knew that Henny Youngman would now and again, you know, tell a joke while he was playing the, the violin. So he asked Mr. Youngman to come out and do the stand-up routine, and he did, and they loved him, and that was it for the rest of his life. He was a stand-up comic, a very famous stand-up comic in the 40s and 50s. Timing was everything for Henny Youngman. But his, his shtick was the one-liners, right? You probably remember his most famous. He would say, take my wife, please. Because um, it was all in the timing, you know? Another one, one of his favorite jokes was, my wife Lou and I, we had 60 years of really good marriage. She had 30, and I had 30. <laughs> or he said, another one of his, my, my favorites was, and he would say, so you know what the secret is of having a really good marriage? He said, my wife and I, we go out two times a week. Candlelight, nice meal, good bottle of wine, soft lights, we dance a lot. She goes out Tuesday and I go out Friday. <laughs> See, it's all about the timing. It's that way in what we were reading in the, in the Bible this morning as well. I think both of these readings, it's all about the timing. For Moses, it was all about being on that mountain that day and having the bush burn and him seeing it burn but not be consumed on that particular day. What if it had been another day that he had been on that mountain? What if the, if the bush hadn't been burning on that particular day? What if he hadn't been with the flock that day? Would he have been able to even get the message from God that, it, that he was to go back to Egypt to, to contend with Pharaoh and to get the Israelites to go free? Timing in that situation was so perfect that he was there and God was there and the bush burned, the animals were there, and what were the chances of that happening? And yet it did. And in that moment, all things changed. I would say all things changed in the world that day because Moses was there. Now look at Moses. Moses had um, run away from Egypt. He had um, murdered um, an overseer, an Egyptian overseer. He had hit him with a brick and killed him because of the way he was treating the Israelites who were being enslaved. And he had run away, and he was living with well, people who were not his people. Really, Moses didn't know who his people were, did he? I mean, he had been raised in the house of the Pharaoh. He knew that he was an Israelite born of an Israelite family, raised by the Pharaoh, did the crime that he committed, had run away, married a Midianite woman, lived in the house of her father, took care of her father's animals, and was for all intents and purposes a Midianite. But that day, on that mountain, the timing was just right. And God and Moses had an encounter together that would change everything. Now, there's a very famous midrash. A midrash is a story that the rabbis would tell um, to explain another story. There's a very famous rabbinical midrash about that incident between Moses and God that day on Mount Horeb in front of the burning bush. And the midrash says is that that conversation went on for seven days. They argued back and forth. We know in, in, in our version of the story, five times Moses said, I can't do that. 
I, I'm, I'm not eloquent enough. I'm, I'm not oh. Five times, like the prophets always did, Moses said, I can't do that. And God argued with Moses for seven days, the Midrash says, until finally Moses complied. Finally Moses was worn down and he said, okay, I will go back to Egypt and my life will be threatened and I will go back to Egypt and, and I will do this, this conflict with the Pharaoh. Seven days, the Midrash says, until the timing was just right. It took seven contentious days back and forth. But it had to be at just that right moment when Moses finally said, yes, I will go. And he did. You know, the fact that, that, that Moses finally did decide to go, the Midrash says, and the purpose of, of this Midrash is because Moses should have been the high priest. But God said, because you contended with me for seven days, I'm going to make your brother Aaron the high priest. And you can't be the high priest. And Moses was crushed, but Moses wouldn't have been the leader of the people that he was if he too had been the high priest. You see, the timing was just right. Contending with God for seven days put God in just the right mood for God to say, no, you can't be the high priest. Aaron's going to be the high priest. Having that done, Moses then led the people out of Egypt into the promised land. The timing was just right. Timing is just right in our gospel reading as well. This, this parable that Jesus told about, about the gardener and, and the vineyard owner and the fig tree. The impetuous, over-eager owner of the vineyard wants to cut down this barren fig tree and he wants to use that pot of land for something else. But the wise gardener, at least in Jesus' perspective, the wise gardener says, no, dig around it, loosen the, loosen the roots, Pour in some manure, let's give it a year. The timing isn't right. It's not the right time. We give it a year, and if it bears fruit next year, then we'll know that we've done the, the, the most patient and the most appropriate thing. But cutting it down now, he said, it's not the time. The time isn't right. And the owner agreed. And he didn't cut down the fig tree. Timing is everything. That's, that's the thrust of what I want you to hear from me this morning. Timing is everything. Yesterday morning, um, we had a professor from the seminary, Timothy Sedgwick. I'd never met him. He wasn't there when I was there. And um, he came to talk about, about the condition of the church, where the church was, not just the Episcopal church, but where the church was generally, you know, where, where we were as a church. And he started giving us that litany that we've all heard or we've all read about, about how the, the church is beginning to decay. People aren't coming to church anymore. People aren't interested in church anymore. There are more nuns, and that's N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. There are more nuns than there are those who go to church these days. Nun means they have no affiliation with the church. And so there are those, woe is me out there, those folks who are going... The church is dying, and, and the church will eventually wither away, much like the fig tree. But what Sedgwick said, which I think was so powerful, was there's another way of looking at that. I've been telling you this for a long time. And the other way of looking at that is that the church is transforming. And any time you have a transformation happen, then there is some kind of a death. And the church is transforming itself. It's becoming something different that we 
are, and this was Sedgwick's words, we are in that moment of great transformation in the church. Maybe like no other moment at all since the very beginning of the church. We are in a place right now where we have an opportunity, indeed a responsibility, to help transform the church into that which it will become. A place that, that, that there is no judgment. A place where justice and mercy really do reign. A place where people really can share not just their beliefs, but also their questions with one another. And not feel in some way like they're going to be condemned, or in some way like they're going to be thought less of. A church that is not so directed internally, but also really directed externally as well. A church that's different. A church that's new. A church that has energy that builds from the love of the people within the church and then exudes out past into the walls, past the walls, out into the streets and the byways and the highways of the world around us. 30 years ago, it's hard to believe, 30 years ago when I was in seminary, two guys from Duke, Will Williman and Stanley Hirewas wrote a book called Resident Alien. <clears throat> and their, their perspective, this was 30 years ago, was that we are, we, the faithful, are the resident aliens. You know, that term from the Bible is, is those who come into Israel who are not Israelites but who are a part of the community. But they're outsiders, they come in. And what these writers said was is that we have become the resident aliens. Christians in the world today, as we define ourselves as Christians, in the world today, we are the outsiders now. We are the ones who were not mainstream any longer. 50, 60 years ago, we can consider ourselves to be mainstream. We would walk out of, of our houses, into our driveways, get into our cars, and we see all our neighbors. And in those days, with sports coats on and neckties, even the little ones, I remember getting dressed up in a sports, co in a sports coat and shorts, and all the neighbors would go out and greet each other as they went to church on Sunday mornings. How many neighbors did you greet this morning coming to church? I bet not very many. It's changed, and it's been changing for a while, and, and now we have an opportunity to see that that change is, is something that is an opportunity for us to help transform who we are and where we're going as a church. What will that look like for us and for our children and for our grandchildren who will need the church even more than we do? The grounding that we have here, that found here, this little embryonic change that's going on within us, it is in, in opposition to what's going on in the world around us, the materialism and, and, and just the blather. And believe me, you just have to watch TV. Watch one of those debates, right? I mean, I don't know. I haven't watched any of them. But, but what I hear is, is, is that it's just noise. And here it's not. And here we have an opportunity to continue to see the change happen, to nurture it, to dig around the roots, to pour in a little manure, to let it grow, to watch it actually take fruit. And for us, for me and you, we're going through that same kind of a transition. Timing is, after all, everything. I look now as I face my last Easter with you and know that the Sundays are counting down, and that soon our paths will diverge, yours and mine. And we'll go different ways. St. Anne will go one way, and I'll go another way. But knowing, too, that in the divergence of the past, there's great opportunity for all of us to continue to do that which God calls us to do, to be together even when we're apart in that sacred endeavor.
to watch this church grow and to become something important, not just to us, but to the world around us. You know, one of the most important parts of, of that reading is a very contentious part. It's when Moses asks God, he says, so what will I tell the people your name is? And it's contentious because of the way that, that verbs work in the Hebrew. So it was translated in our reading, um, tell the people God says, I am who I am. But because the tenses are a little fishy, it can also be translated as, I will be who I will be. And it can also be translated, some scholars say, I will be there. I will be there. So wherever we are, in our ministry, together, <laughs> or apart, God promises that God will be there in the midst of that which we are doing. That's the promise. There's, 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 that, there's that, that marching orders, but there's also the promise. Go, he told Moses. Dig, he told the gardener. Go, he tells us. But the promise is, I'll be there with you every step of the way when you go. As a matter of fact, your going assures that I will be there with you. The more risks you take, the more you'll know that I'm there. The more things that you're willing to step out and do, the more you'll know that I'm there with you. The more you stretch yourselves, the more God says, I'll be there while you stretch. That's, that's my promise. And in my life, every time I've stretched, God has been there. I don't expect it to be any different any time in the future. So how do we do it? What does it mean for us to, to take these marching orders and go forward? The Lord knows we watched Moses through the Bible and all that he had to face as he went through it. Going, going back to Egypt is just the beginning and all the trials and tribulations. And so finally he stood on that mountain and looked over it and into the promised land and saw that all that was before the people but the promise from God that God will be there with us is, too, that the journey will have meaning. The journey will make sense. Several years ago, I was out in Los Angeles um, with a group of people, and we were privileged to listen to a Jesuit priest named Gregory Boyle um, as, as, he, as he talked about his community. Greg Boyle started walking the streets of East L.A., um, as a young priest just working with the gangs. And in any given day, there was a possibility, as the drive-by shootings were so rampant then, that he would be caught in some kind of a crossfire and then he would be killed. But he persisted in doing what he did um, and then going to the, to the prisons in California and beginning to rehabilitate some of the men and women who had been drug addicted and who had been um, um, then released from prison. He started something called Homeboy Industries. And it started as a bakery, and now it is the largest rehabil rehabilitation center for ex-gang members in the country. Homeboy Industries. So I want to read you something that, that he said to us that day. He started with the word ministry, but I'm going to start, I'm going to change that to the Christian life. So this is the way I read it. He says, the Christian life is not meant to be a gas tank where you begin the day with a full tank and by the end of the day, your tank <laughs> is on E. Something's wrong if, it, if that's the way it works. If the intent is to save people, 
or even to help people, then it works that way. You're going to be depleted. But if the task is allowing yourself to be reached by people, can you receive people? Can you be anchored in the here and now and practice the, the sacrament of present moment? If you can do that, then it's all delight and it's all amazement and it's all awe. We're only saved in the present moment. If we're not saved in the present moment, we're not saved at all. For me, it's never about depletion. It used to be, when I used to think my job was saving lives, but now I think saving lives is for the Coast Guard. Our choice always is the same. Save the world or savor it. And I vote for savoring it. And just because everything is about something else, if you savor the world, somehow, go figure, it gets saved. If you savor the world. So what do you savor? What is it that lights you up? What is it that gives you that sense of amazement? That sense of awe? What is it that brings joy to your life? Makes you feel filled up? Because whatever makes you feel that way will make somebody else feel that way too. What do you savor? What's important to you? As we now move forward, and as the days count down of our time together, but also the days in generally count down, do we have really the right not to savor? When we finally call it quits, don't we want to be able to say that we got everything we could, we squeezed it all out? I think so. I know I do. The shoulds and the oughts, they need to go away. The feeling guilty about not doing this or not doing that. Rather, what Boyle suggests, and I think he's right, is that what makes you feel full of joy and complete. Because what makes you feel complete will make them feel complete. So be full of joy and savor. Taste it. Feel it. Watch it grow.